So there's this quote by a German writer that says, few people have the imagination for reality. Few people have the imagination for reality. Now, imagination is forming ideas of objects not present to the senses. In other words, what it really is, is seeing what is not as if it was. So seeing what is not as if it was. And so tonight, what we're going to see is we're going to see three kings. Three kings who found themselves in a situation in their life where God was in their lives powerfully. God was, they had this encounter with God but they just couldn't see past the reality. They couldn't, they didn't have the imagination in this sense, in this context, to see the reality of what their situation really was. And that was that God was working in it and through them and for them. And at failing to do that, we see that God, God responds in judgment because of that. But we're also going to see the prophet Isaiah and his calling. He gets a vision and a calling. And because he has this encounter with God, we see that he responds to this calling. He's compelled. He has no other choice but to fully surrender to God and his majesty. And finally, there's going to be a sign that's going to be given by uh, that's going to give into Isaiah to give to Judah. And that's the sign of the Messiah. And we're going to see how the Messiah is going to look in an era and what it means to Israel, what it means to us and to the creation, really what it is. So um, the context is 8th century BC. So Israel and Judah have already split. There's a northern and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is known as Israel. The southern kingdom is known as Israel. I mean, sorry, Judah. And so what we're also going to see is that um, there's other players in play. So we're going to see Syria, uh, the, the, who's going to join up forces with Israel and vice versa. We're also going to see Assyria, which is a nation that had been dormant for a while in the east. And what's going to happen is that they're going to rise and they're going to start moving westward towards Samaria or Israel and towards the other nations. Um, and so that's what we're going to see tonight. But in the end, if we walk out of here with anything, I want us to walk out of here with a hope that uh, in whatever is going on in our lives tonight, whatever is happening in our lives there's hope in the Messiah. There's hope in God because in every situation, in every way that he speaks to us, because not everybody hears the same way, everybody's a little bit different. Everybody needs to be spoken a little different. For example, my wife, God usually shows her how much he loves her. Um, one of the biggest things that, that I'm still amazed by is that um, when she sees a deer or some type of animal alive, she's like, wow, God loves me because that deer came out of nowhere. I mean, I'm skidding to avoid it, but she's like, that. God loves me because he just showed me this deer. For me, it's a little different. And I don't know if you guys might be able to uh, be more like me or, or, or more like me. But for me, it's a little different. God doesn't show me in that way. He usually puts me through rough situations where I have to get down on my knees. And I have to see that he really does love me because he's allowing things into my life that are, that are causing growth in me. 
And through that way is how I see that God loves me. I mean, not right away, right? Our first reaction is like, God, why are you doing this in my life? That, that's, that's usually my first reaction, if we're really honest. Um, but my wife's different. So what we see is to each one of these kings, including, and, and including Isaiah, we're going to see that God's going to speak to them in different ways. And in different ways, he's going to be in their lives. And some of them are going to be aware and some of them are not going to be aware of that. And we'll see what are the effects of that. So first, we're going to start with um, Israel. So we're going to start in chapter 9. So we're going to start in chapter 9 and around verse 8. So what we're going to see is that um, there's four instances in this section here in chapter 9 where... um, it says that God has not turned his anger away and that he still has his hand stretched out towards Israel. Um, and this is what, what, so if we look at verse 12, that's one of the instances. He says uh, in the last part of verse 12, he says, For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Then if you jump down to verse 17, um, the end of 17, again, he says, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still is stretched out still. And then verse 21, once again, he says in the last part of 21, he says, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And the last instance we see is 10, chapter 10, verse 4, and I won't read it again because you guys get the point. But this is the way that he was talking to Israel. This is the way that he was trying to communicate to Israel. Israel, you're not alone. You're not on your own. I am here. I am part of your life. And by Israel, I mean uh, uh, the nation as a whole, but specifically speaking through their king, Pekah. Uh, and so what we see is that God is speaking to them through this. So in God's judgment, there is purpose. We see that Israel, um, Pastor Brandon was talking about this in his side B. Uh, if you guys heard the side B, he was talking about how Israel not only disobeyed God, not only walked away from God, but they did the complete opposite of what God was asking them to do. God said, do this, and they did the complete opposite of it. It was complete rebellion. And so they're in a place where they don't even want to hear from God. They don't even want to see God in their lives. And so what we see is that in that God still pursues them God still comes after them God still says hey I'm still here but you need to hear in a different way and so in the judgment towards Israel what we see is that there's a purpose of purification a purification where he wants to make Israel his chosen people already he wants to make them a people a nation of his own zealous for good works because that is what the people of God are are their nation of his own zealous for good works but we see that instead of doing that when they become aware of this pursuit they don't turn to God they actually continue to turn away from God and if we look in chapter 9 verse 9 It says this, 
And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say, pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. So when you guys think about bricks, what do you guys think about? What was the first thing that comes to mind? Say it with me, Babel. What, what, what were the, the, uh, the Tower of Babel? What was the whole purpose? The whole purpose of Babel was so that they could reach the skies above the skies. We'll build a tower together so high that we'll reach the heavens is what they say. And so what we see here is that there's a pride and arrogance in Israel that goes back to Babel. Where in verse 10 he says, the bricks have fallen, but we build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place they're basically saying it doesn't matter if we don't have brick to keep going up it doesn't matter if we don't have brick to reach the heavens we'll put cedars from lebanon we'll put whatever needs to be put up to continue to stay prideful and arrogant prideful and arrogant and so this is one of the things that the lord judges them for because they continue he's punishing them and instead of them saying i repent i turn to you forgive me i surrender what they're saying is no it doesn't matter we're not repenting we're riding our ways we're gonna continue the path that we're continuing and we're just gonna keep in our ways our ways are okay we're in a good place. They're not seeing what God's really trying to do in their lives. They're not trying to see what God's trying to do in their lives. And so what we see also is that all this starts with the elders. The Bible speaks highly of, of, of elders as far as setting the bar high. You see, elders, teachers, pastors, we're going to be judged at a really high bar because we're teaching others we're leading others but i also see when he speaks about this that it's not just teachers and pastors but if you have the holy spirit in you if you have christ in you you're supposed to be a leader or we're supposed to be leaders right because that includes me too leaders to others then if we're if we're purposely in our intentions not doing them not leading what does that mean for us we're going to be judged in the same way. And it, it, if anything, it should encourage us. It's not a judgment to put down. It's not a judgment to say, oh, man, I suck. Um, I, I, I just can't do, be a Christian. No, rather, it should encourage us to say, I want to live the life that Christ has called us to live. Not only because we're going to get judged, because I want to be like Christ. And because I know that there is life in Christ. And so if we go to Verse 14, this is what it says about that. Actually, let's start in 13. He says, The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm and branch, and reed in one day. The elder, an honored man, is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tales for those who guide this people have been leading them astray. So he casts his judgment on those that have been leading the people astray because it starts with the elders. It starts with the teachers. If we're not walking in the light, those following are not going to walk in the light. If there's something I've learned from working with discipleship ministries is that the people that you're discipleship, the students that you're discipling usually are struggling with issues that you yourself are struggling with. 
whether it be spiritual or whatever else, you'll see a reflection of yourself in the students. God is so good to bring people into your life. And even if you're not discipling, God is so good to bring people into your life that will reflect something in you. If you guys are married, husband and wife, you guys know that better than anybody. There's things in my wife that I see and that kind of frustrate me sometimes. And I'm like, oh, I'm so frustrated about this. But then I realize that's because of me. That's because I'm the one. It's in my heart. I'm the one that's struggling with this. And so what we see is that God is judging this here. He's saying, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm punishing you because I want first your elders to come to the light, to in in awareness of me, to turn to me. But then he also says this. If we go to verse 18, he says, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickest of force, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. So important. Wickedness burns like a fire. Has anybody ever seen a, a fire just go? Like it starts small and then it just, it goes, right? Let us not be deceived that a little wickedness is not going to harm us. That a little sin, a little leaven, a little deceit is not going to harm us. Because it says it burns like fire. So yes, it started with the elders. And they probably thought, well, nobody's really looking at us. Nobody's seeing us. But then what happens is it spreads like fire through the nation. Next thing you know, the whole nation of Israel is in darkness. And so what we see so important is that we stay in the light, stay in Christ, rooted in Christ, because what Israel did is they allowed wickedness to prevail instead of seeking for atonement. Is that, oh, I'm in the darkness already, so I might just as well take another step. Oh, I might as well just take another step and another. Next thing you know, you're fully in the darkness. You can't even see yourself. And so what we see is that he's talking to that. And finally, in verse, um, in chapter 10, verse 3, he says this, What will you do on a day of, of punishment? And the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Verse 4. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. This is so important. He's like, he says, there's nothing, nothing remains for you to do. You either fall among the prisoners or you crouch. I mean, you, you, you crouch among the prisoners or you fall among the slain. Paul talks about this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he says. And he's talking specifically about this. And for Israel, what it was, either you trust in me, you turn from your ways and you repent and you come to me, you run to me, or guess what? You are going to fall with the slain. And this also speaks into a remnant, remnant that he's going to be talking about. Because everyone had to make their choice. And so what we see is that for Israel, judgment was with a purpose. God spoke in judgment. And he spoke to Israel, to King Pekah with 
judgment. But it was not just because he was angry. It was not just because he wanted to destroy them. But rather because he wanted to purify them. He wanted to restore them. But he also left it up to them. And so um, he says this and expresses this. If you go to chapter 10 verse 22. He says this. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Yes, I have, I have judged you. I have brought destruction on you. But it's with righteousness because I want to purify you. I want you to repent. I want you to come to me once again and be a nation. And so what we see is that uh, Israel was given that choice. And um, unfortunately, we later see in 722 that they actually do fall. Um, they actually do fall to this nation, Assyria, who was coming to conquer because they continue to disobey. They continue to run the other way. They continue to say, we just won't submit to the Lord. The next... Um, the next king we're going to see is uh, the king of Assyria. And so if we go to chapter 10, verse 5, that's where uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah talks about this king of Assyria. So what we're going to see here is that um, Assyria was a pagan nation. Assyria was one of the most ruthless nations of the time. When they conquered people, they didn't allow them to practice their religion. They didn't allow them to live. Most of the times what they would do, and it's, it's, it's gruesome, is they would skin people alive. They would skin people alive, whoever they conquered. And so they were ruthless. But despite that, what we see is that God is going to use them. For his purpose. God's going to use them for a greater purpose. And in using them, he not only wants to use them for his purpose, but he wants to speak to them. He wants to talk to them. He wants to say, hey, despite your arrogance, despite who you are, I'm going to come into your life and I'm going to use you. And I, I think, this is what I believe, I believe that there's some hope that maybe, just maybe, these pagan people, the Assyrian, might turn from their wicked ways, might actually recognize they're being, that they're being used for a higher purpose. And so what, we, what, I, what I see here is that despite it all, God uses and punishes the arrogant and the boastful heart. So God uses, but he also punishes the boastful and arrogant heart. Um, I don't know about you guys, but... There's, God can use anybody. A lot of times we think, oh, he's not Christian. There's no way that God can be using him. Or, no, there's no way that God can be using that person. Look at the way they live their life. Guess what? God can use anybody he wants. He used Pharaoh. He used Egypt. He used them all. And right here, what we're going to see is that he uses Assyria. He uses them for an instrument of correction. So if we go to... 10 verse 5 it says this woe to Assyria the rod of my anger the staff in their hands is my fury the first thing he says is 
the, uh, the rod of my anger. They're being used by God. The hands in my fury. And then he goes on. Who is he using them against? His own people. His own nation that he's calling. In verse 6 he says, Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So we see here that not only is he using them against his his nation, his chosen people, but he says, this is the reason why I'm using them. To tread them down like a mire of the streets. Now he doesn't say to completely annihilate them. He doesn't say to completely destroy them. What he's saying is that he's just gonna he's gonna use them to tread them down. He's gonna use them to judge Israel. But Assyria made a grave mistake that they never realized their purpose in God. They never realized that there was a grand a grand purpose. Instead, they become boastful. They become arrogant. And so what we see is that in verse um, 7, he says about Assyria, he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations, not a few, for he says, are not my commanders like kings. And so what we see here is that God was in use, using them for a purpose, but they missed the whole point. They completely missed the point. And what we see is that they become boastful and arrogant. And instead of seeing that God was moving them to conquer all these nations, if you look at history, Assyria was a, a nation that was struggling politically, was struggling economically, was struggling in every area. So for them to all of a sudden pick up and come against nations, that's a lot to say about them. It should have pointed to the fact that God was using them, that God was working their lives. But instead, instead of that, what they see is um, greed. What they see is what they can have. What they see is what can be done for them. And so what he says in verse 12, if we go to ten twelve, he says, Then the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And the boastful look in his eyes, for he says, I remove the boundaries of the people. And then if we jump down to verse 15, he says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields, wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? So we see here that um, the Lord had a greater purpose there. They had a bigger role than just taking over nations and plundering these nations and, and being kings over them. The Lord had a greater role for them, but they completely missed it. And upon missing it, they end up in verse 18 and 19, they end up receiving punishment where they will be taken over. And we see later on that Babylon rises and sweeps over from the, uh, from the east to the west 
taking over Assyria and Assyria was no more. And so as we look at this, it's so easy to say, well, you know, they deserve that they were wicked, they were evil, they were whatever. And not that we are, but how many times does the Lord use us and we think, wow, I did really good and we pat ourselves in the back. How many times does the Lord bring somebody to, uh, to salvation through us and we say, wow, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then next thing we know, we're chasing one feeling after the other, one experience after the other, trying to say, God, I want to experience it again and again and again. So then we become experienced junkies. Where if we're not feeling the, the, the spirit moving, if we're not feeling joy or this energy, then, then God's no longer there. How many times are we in that place? I've been there before. And, and sometimes I can get in that place if I'm not aware of what God's doing in my life. If I'm not aware that regardless of what's happening in my life, God is there and God's doing something And we could easily fall into this place where we become boastful, where we become arrogant. And also on the other side of the coin, we can be sure that God can use somebody who doesn't know him to bring into our lives or to grow us. Um, Pastor Brandon was talking about uh, a um, a few messages uh, ago, he was talking about seeing Christ in everything and seeing Christ in everyone. And uh, I don't think he meant that everybody has Christ in them. What he was saying was that in our situations, in the people that come into our lives, Christ is there. Why? Because he's trying to speak to us. He's trying to grow us. He tr- he's trying to change us. You see, Second Corinthians three eighteen says that we're being transformed from glory to glory. So we're not just saved and all of a sudden we're immaculate or we're not just saved and all of a sudden that's it there's no more no it doesn't work like that we're saved and then there's like all these lists of things that the lord wants to change but if he were to give us that list we'd be like oh that's never gonna happen we'd probably give up but instead what we see is that the lord takes us a step at a time one step at a time he brings a person into our life that we're like oh my gosh i can't stand this person right no nobody feels like that yeah, um, or, or he, he allows situations into our lives that we're like, God, I, I, I don't know that I could I continue down this road. I, I just give up. He says, no, be still and know that I am God. I am here. I'm with you. I have called you by your name. And, and he just carries us through it. And so for Assyria, what we see is that um, God used them for a, a greater purpose in hopes probably that they would come and, 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 and that they would know that he was Lord. But they completely missed that. And what we see is that there's punishment because they missed that. And so um, the third uh, one that we're going to see is Judah, um, King Ahaz. And so what we see is that with King, uh, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, he's going to be given a sign because Isaiah is going to, come to him he's going to be sent to him so the context of ahaz is excuse me the context of ahaz is that israel uh the nation northern kingdom um and syria were teamed up together when they saw that assyria started moving in to the east 
what they started to do was like, well, let's team up together. Let's go up against the Syria. We're not going to be able to stop them alone. And we both, they were like frenemies, basically. That's what they were. And so they come to Judah and they say, hey, Judah, join us to the king of Judah. Ahaz. He's like, join us because we're going to go take over um, Assyria so that they don't take over us. So Judah says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to join you guys because I know that you guys, one, are not, are not with the Lord. Two, I also know that uh, it's just not going to happen. You guys, I'm going to go with you guys and then you guys are going to take over me and all these other things. So basically he says, no, it's not going to happen. And when he rejects their offer, what ends up happening is that um, they come against him. So the ones that were to come against Assyria come against Judah. And the setting that we have here is exactly that. So if we go to verse, uh, chapter 7, what we're going to see is that um, in a time where um, Ahaz is uh, basically his heart shaking. He's afraid of these two nations that have come up against them. They were, these were small nations compared to what Assyria was. And um, so what we see, if we go to verse 4, it says this, And say to him, to, to Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. So that's what he calls um, Israel and Syria. And so if you guys go down to verse 9, the end of verse 9, I think this really defines uh, what, a- what God is trying to speak to Ahaz, the king of Judah. He says at the, at the end of 9, he says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You see, a man without faith, will stumble and fall. When I say man, I say man and woman. It's not, but, but a person who is in Christ, in God, will fall, will stumble and fall if there is no faith. And so for Ahaz, that's exactly what it is. And so if we go to verse 10, he explains this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shield or as high as as heaven. So basically Isaiah comes and tells him this, ask a sign because the Lord sent him to do this. And we'll talk about Isaiah in a little bit. I know you guys are waiting anxiously to talk about Isaiah. But in verse 12, he says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and will not put the Lord to the test. So he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, uh, at first glance, this might seem like, wow, um, it has so spiritual that like he's just believing. He's just believing out of faith. How could you say that he has no faith? And uh, I would agree with you that this was the only text we had about him. But what we see in, um, and we're not going to go to it because we don't have that much time, but in Second Kings chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, what it talks about is that Ahaz was not a man who was doing God's will. Ahaz was one of those kings who sacrificed his son to a God, who as a burnt offering sacrificed his son. And not only that, in the time that this is happening, um, what the Bible says is that Ahaz had already contacted Assyria. Ahaz had already contacted uh, Syria, 
And he was saying, hey, he was basically going behind everybody's back and saying, hey, if you come help me, I will join with you. So basically, Assyria, these two are planning, plotting against you, but I will join you if you come to my aid against Syria and Israel. And then he writes another letter to Syria and says, hey, the nation of Israel is coming against me. But hey, if you join with me, if you come to my aid, I will be with you. And not only that, he goes as far as going to the temple, taking all the gold, everything of value, and he sends it as a gift to Assyria so that he could come to his aid. So what does it say about Ahaz? Even though he's saying, yes, uh, I won't, I'm sorry, no, I won't ask for a sign, seeming spiritual, seeming like, wow, like this guy is really confident and, and has faith in the Lord. He's really not. He's doing all these things behind closed doors. And what we see is that um, in verse 13, this is what Isaiah responds and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So what we see is that out of false piety, he refuses, but he says, you know what? You don't deserve it, but God's going to give you a sign because he wants to speak to you. He wants you to know that he is God. And so while... While Ahaz is putting his trust in earthly kings, God is still pursuing him. God is still there after him. And we see that um, eventually he'll stumble and fall, but God is still there and wanting. So basically, in um, we're going to skip around a little bit because we're going to come back to the sign that he says. But 18 through 23, what happens is that he says this is how the judgment is going to come. And he talks about um, Egypt, which later happens when Babylon's there. He talks about Assyria. And Assyria actually comes down, sweeps down, takes out Damascus, which is uh, Syria's capital, takes out Israel, which um, basically becomes later Samaria in the times of Jesus. And so what we see is that um, God, when he's speaking to Judah, He's asking for faith. He's giving him reasons to have faith. But uh, uh, Ahaz, the king, doesn't do it. Instead, he turns from him and says, yes, I'm here. But in reality, his heart is somewhere else. And so his lips were saying, God, I have faith in you. I trust in you. But his heart was not with God. His heart was with the king's of the world and so um regardless in chapter 8 verse 8 if we go there so chapter 8 verse 8 he says this and it will sweep on into judah it will overflow and pass on reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land so he's talking about assyria actually coming and taking over syria uh, uh israel and coming all the way to Jerusalem, and what happens is actually this siege that happens where um, Jerusalem's going to fall, but what happens is that the Lord does another miracle, and he basically destroys the Assyrian army without, the, uh, the, without Judah doing anything at all. 
But he speaks about it here. And so at the end of verse 8, he says, O Emmanuel. And if we look at Matthew 1.23, O Emmanuel means God with us. He says, I'm with you. And so in verse 9, he says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So what he's saying is, you can do all you want, but if you do it on your own, you're going to fall. If you do it without faith, you're going to fall. But you know what? I'm going to do it for you because I'm with you. So this is a lot about God being involved, personally involved with his creation, with us as human beings, him being God. He's still involved in our everyday lives, even when it doesn't seem like it. And so what we see is that God with us also used for the Messiah. And we'll go into a little bit of that. But let's go to Isaiah first before we go into um, the messianic signs. So Isaiah says this. So basically with Isaiah, what we see is that it's around the time of 740 BC. Um, 740 BC when Isaiah is actually sees his vision and then he receives his calling. And so in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we see that he sees the Lord, it says. King Uzziah dies, and then he sees the Lord. He gets his vision. So we see the death of a king, but he gets to see, he gets this personal encounter with the king, the king of kings, and that's God Almighty, And so what we see is that if you continue on in verse 3, it says, And one called to another and said, talking about seraphim, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's two things here. When he says, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, it speaks about his full authority in ethical and morally and moral realm. So basically his full authority over ethical and moral things, no matter what it is. Secondly, he says the whole earth is full of his glory. It also speaks about his transcendence in the world. He's not just a God that's up there. He's not just a God that's, oh, I can't be with those people because they're sinful. No, in through his spirit, he's here with us. And so what we see is that um, Isaiah has this personal encounter with him. He has this personal encounter and becomes aware of one thing. And if we look at verse 5, this is what he becomes aware of when he has this personal encounter. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he sees his sin, and he also sees the sin of his people, of Judah. And so upon this encounter with God, what happens is awareness. It's not this, oh, I saw God, I'm, I'm special. Or, oh, I saw God, I, 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 I'm, I, can, I can just walk forever and live forever and be fine. No, this encounter brings him to a place where he realizes his sin. And he realizes his sin, he realizes the sin 
of his people and he hurts for them. Um, so then in verse 7 he says, um, basically this one of the servants takes a, a burning coal with tongues and he takes it and in verse 7 he says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So his guilt is completely removed. Sin completely atoned for. And he has no other choice but to say in verse in verse um, 8, he says, Here I am, send me. When he hears, who shall go for us? Whom shall we, or whom shall we, I send? Who shall go for us? He says, here I am. Why? Because he had this encounter with God. He saw God in his full glory. And not only that, he knew he came to an awareness of his sin. And that sin was atoned for him. Because of that, he was so compelled to say, here I am. He didn't question. He's like, where are we going? Or what are we going to do? Or what am I going to be called for? Am I going to like it? Am I going to be comfortable? Am I going to... He didn't say any of that. It's really awesome because uh, Mike Beavers has been talking a lot about calling. And, and, um, and I know that Craig said that, like, this is the verse that came to mind. It's so awesome because before coming out to California, me and my wife are from Chicago. Um, and before coming out to California, this is the exact same verse that the Lord gave to me to confirm for me to leave Chicago to eventually end up in California. I mean, at the time, I didn't know I was going to come to California, but it ended up that way. And it's just so awesome because just like him, I was also compelled to say, I see my sin. I see my brokenness. But despite that, I know who you are. I've seen your glory. I've seen what you've done in my life. And because of that, here I am. Send me wherever you want. But we can't get to that place unless we know our God. We can't get to that place unless we have fully had a personal encounter with Jesus. If we haven't had that encounter, there's no way we could be compelled to say, here I am, I'll go wherever you want. That, that's just not a thing. And so he says in verse 9, he said, go and say to this people, and he gives them his calling, what he's going to say. And then I say in verse 11, says, and how long, O Lord, do I keep saying this? And he says, until cities are lies waste without inhabitants. So just keep doing it until I tell you otherwise. What we see here is that Isaiah, when compelled to volunteer, he departs with full authority. And he also departs with full fear of who God is. And not a fear like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of God. I'm going to hide in darkness hoping that God maybe doesn't see in that darkness. No, it's a fear where I'm like in such an awe of who God is that I I just want to please him. I want everything I desire, I want it to be his desire. I don't know if you guys want to be there someday, but I do. I want to be in a place where no matter what is going on in my life, my desire is God and his desires only. And so... Finally, um, the last one we're going to look is is the branch, which the branch, what who it really is um, in in uh, New Testament context is Jesus Christ the Messiah. What we see is a messianic era where um, basically nations who were in darkness, he comes and he does ministry, 
And so the signs that they give, if we go to um, chapter 7, so we're going to go to the sign that was given to Ahaz, is this. So in verse um, 14, he says, um, therefore, so ver- uh, chapter 7, verse 14, he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. So he talks about this time. And this is also reflected in chapter 8, verse 1 through um, through 4. Except that in chapter 8, 1 through 4, what it really is is that he's given the sign to Isaiah. And Isaiah goes and, and there's this virgin that conceives. And, and it's basically Isaiah's son who is born. Um, and so there's different interpretations as to what how these parallel um, some of the interpretations of how these parallel are that they, they're the same sign. They're just told in different ways. Also, uh, that they're different signs. Uh, one that happened in the now, like for uh, where Isaiah's son is born. Basically, the one that happened in the now is that uh, before the child could say all these things, uh, then Assyria was going to come and take over Israel. And that actually did happen. And then the other one was that... Um, the, the other one means the Messiah, the other sign that Jesus Christ would come. And so what we see is um, that he gives this sign, but what it really speaks about is a hope. There's this nation that's coming, and there's all this judgment, but it's going to stop. And I'm going to give you this sign. And it gives a sign of hope, but in faith. And so the last thing we're going to see is in chapter 11. And so in chapter 11... Verse 1, this is what it says about this branch. It says, there shall, come forth, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So this is God. Keeping to his promises. So this is God keeping to his promises that somebody would always sit on the throne of David. So this branch that would have the spirit of God in him. That would have the power of God and um, that would also have the fear of God would come from uh, the Davidic line. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about the stump of Jesse. And then in verse 10 it says, In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place be glorious. So in verse 10, he says that there's going to be peace amongst people, and there's going to be harmony also amongst creation. So this root of David, I mean, this 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 Messiah, what it's going to bring is confidence in God's redemptive redemptive purpose because God what he really has is a purpose to redeem his creation a purpose to redeem these nations and those who choose to follow will will do so but it gives us 
hope. It, it says that the Messiah would be empowered by the Spirit of God and that it would bring his people peace and harmony, and harmony to creation. Without Jesus, there is no peace because he is the Prince of Peace. We could think about it all day long of how we could bring peace and how we could bring the nations together. But when it comes down to the Bible speaks specifically that without Jesus, there is no peace. And those of us that do have Jesus Christ in our hearts, we have that peace, that peace which surpasses all understanding. And so what we see here is that God was speaking to every single one of these nations whether they knew God or didn't know God, pagan or not, um, it didn't matter. God was speaking to all of them. God was working in their lives, in their nations, in their in whatever it may be, and even for His purpose. But only only few have the imagination for reality. The reality that everything that we actually see is not going to be one day. The day is going to come when this branch, the Messiah, is going to come for a second time. And none of this is going to be. So can we have the imagination? Can we have that surety, confidence, hope to say, I know that reality looks like this? But that's not reality because I have a God who is powerful, who is mighty, a savior who says otherwise. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's destruction. There's deceit. There's darkness. But it doesn't matter because my God says otherwise. And can we step forward in that faith knowing that he who said it, it's not going to let you down. He who said it is not going to take a step back at the last minute. Why? Because he is God. And can we all agree to what chapter 12, verse 1 through 2 says? Can we declare this? You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. I encourage you. If tonight you're sitting here and, and, and you don't know the Lord. Seek him tonight. And, and come see someone about it if you have questions. If tonight you're here and you're struggling with the idea whether God is real or not, seek him. And I'm telling you that he's going to show you a sign. He's going to show himself in your life. If you're struggling with a situation, just have faith. And, and I know it's easy to say just have faith because it doesn't come easy. But step into it in faith and say, I know I see this and I know I see my situation and I know what could happen, but I'm going to believe God because he already spoke. And just like Isaiah, he saw God in his majesty. He became aware of his sin and he didn't just stay there. Oh, I'm messed up. I'm, I can't serve the Lord. No, he saw his sin and he declared what was, but then 
His sin was atoned for and then he was compelled to say, here I am. And go into his calling, step into his calling in faith. And his calling wasn't easy, but he did it. And there's 66 chapters to prove it. So as we go tonight, or as we go move into communion.